Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, the two-day Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit and quickly got wrap up, but now this time, the current sitting Chinese President Xi Jinping was able to step out his comfort zone, actually traveled to some of the countries in Central Asia, of course. Besides meeting with some of the critical leaders, the world was watching for the first time. Xi Jinping was able to meet up with one of the most controversial figures in the world, which is Vladimir Putin. Since the war in Ukraine broke out, everyone has been very critical and especially negative regarding Putin's performance. But somehow, China's comment and also this Chinese attitude got actually high praises. From Vladimir Putin, but meanwhile, let's talk about this one-China policy under Joe Biden. If you follow the news closely, the White House and the sitting U.S. president seem to have different perspective regarding this critical region. And last but not least, we're going to talk about some of the ongoing political shift in Sweden today. Now, putting everything together, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite. Professor Mark Lenton. Again, if you follow our show, you know Professor Mark Lenton teaches in political science, including international relations, comparative politics, include the countries of China, Japan, South Korea, and many more. And his current research includes international political changes around Asian. Now, again, Professor Mark, and welcome back to the Missing Piece. Thank you. Great to be here. Professor Mark, again, as we mentioned in the intro, so much has taken place in the past few weeks, especially regarding this ongoing political ties between China and Russia. As we mentioned before, now recent trip for Xi Jinping went to Central Asia. This has been one of the major significant milestone for this leader, given this condition that COVID prevented him from traveling outside the world, outside China. But meanwhile, Professor Mark, I want to read something to you. This is what we got based on the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. During the meeting, that Putin emphasized this bilateral ties between the country, and I quote: "This is something he said: the world is undergoing many changes, but the only thing that remains unchanged is the friendship and mutual trust between China and Russia." This comprehensive strategic partnership of coordination between two countries is as solid as a mountain, Professor Mark. I want to get your reaction. How should we understand the first time meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and how should we understand this strong statement from Putin? As we mentioned before, the country, the relationship, is as solid as a mountain. Go ahead. Yes. Well, first of all, I would say that this SCO meeting was extremely important to both leaders, to Vladimir Putin and to Xi Jinping, but for very different reasons. And looking at what's come out of that particular summit, it's almost like two different、uh, meetups were going on at the same time, depending on who you're speaking to. Now, the Russian media has been trying to play up the importance of、uh, so-called regional support for its invasion of Ukraine, but China has been trying to kind of push the narrative a little bit more towards the need for regional cooperation,、mm. the need to provide an alternative to the West. And to focus on the main issues within the SCO, which is primarily building mutual security, economic cooperation in Central Asia, and dealing with the situation in Afghanistan. 
So when the Ukraine uh, conflict broke out, China was very careful not to either condone or condemn what Russia had done. Mm. And this was right on the heels of the previous meeting between the two leaders where they announced a no-limits partnership. Mm. And yet, if you look at the comments that came out of this meeting in Samarkand, you definitely get the feeling that China has considerably more reservations about what Russia is doing, especially since this came right at a time where Russia experienced some very significant military losses in northern Ukraine. And concerns are starting to appear within Russia as to whether or not the conflict is sustainable and uh, the longevity of the Putin regime. So it's been very interesting to kind of track the different messaging that's been coming out of that meeting over the past few days. And Professor Mark, also, I want to get your reaction. This is the statement from current Chinese leader Xi Jinping. And during the summit that he responded by saying that China is ready to work with Russia in extending strong support to each other on issues concerning their respective core interests. You know, you and I, we've been discussing the Chinese leader for uh, many times. And on one hand, it's rather difficult to interpret the words and the meaning exactly out of his mouth. But meanwhile, I think we can read it between the lines. As we mentioned before, since the war broke out in Ukraine, China has been holding this nonchalant or even this careful attitude towards Ukraine and Russia at the same time. Because again, given the condition, China never wanted to make enemies out of anything for any other reason or purpose. Purposes. But meanwhile, I think this is such a very strong affirmative answer to tell Vladimir Putin that, again, we are willing to support each other on issues concerning our respective core interests. So going back to the question is, what are the core interests that you think the Chinese Xi Jinping is referring to at this moment? And also, by showing this careful attitude to Vladimir Putin, don't you think that China is actually losing more interests or losing more friends because of the war in Ukraine, given the condition every single country in the world pretty much has already taken the side, either you're with Ukraine or with Russia? What do you think? Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with your assessment that China's foreign policy has certainly taken some damage by its stance on the Ukraine invasion. Now, officially, China has declared neutrality in the conflict, and they have, on occasion, offered themselves as mediators. Mm. But realistically speaking, what China, because China has not condemned the invasion, because China has continued to um, resist any discussion of joining in the sanctions regime, it still continues to purchase oil from Russia, that China has been criticized for not, uh, not doing enough to discourage Russia from uh, basically abandoning its, uh, its war plans mm. in Ukraine. However, China is also very concerned, as you say, that it wants to maintain good relations with Russia, but also with several other partners, including with Europe. And there is the hope, I believe, in Beijing that that kind of balance can still be undertaken. But this is becoming extremely difficult now. We have no particular endpoint for this conflict. Mm. China's economy is facing a great deal of strain right now. Mm. Um, the Party Congress, which has been announced for mid-October, I imagine there's going to be a lot of discussion about China's economic direction. And quite frankly, China would very much like to turn the page and look at other very pressing areas of domestic and international policy. The Ukraine is very much omnipresent if we're going to be talking about anything relating to China's foreign relations. Well, Professor Mark, I also want to get your reaction on something else as well. Now, again, given the fact that since we know that Chinese President Xi Jinping has specific agendas every time he travels, 
But this time, and he understood clearly that by having this meeting with Vladimir Putin, that could send a lot more messages, not only to the people in both countries, but also outside the world. And also, as we mentioned before, the West, especially in America, have been very much careful and also mindful regarding this political and also this economic partnership between China and Russia. So my next question to you, Professor Mark, is how do you think America today should understand this military cooperation, economic partnership, political ties between Russia and China at this moment? And how concerning is the situation to the West at this moment? Okay, well, just to go back to the SEO meeting, just to give an example, this particular organization has its origins about 20 years ago, and this was spearheaded by China and Russia at the time in order to promote better security in Central Asia. Now, since that time, though, China and Russia's views on the SEO have diverged a bit. Russia still tends to view the organization as primarily strategic, primarily military. But China sees Central Asia as certainly a security concern, but also one where it wants to build a Belt and Road, greater economic relations, and community building. So I think that's very indicative to some of the issues when you look at the partnership between China and Russia. We are talking about, for example, very different power trajectories. There is a lot of concern in China that Russia is a decline power and that the conflict in Ukraine is accelerating that uh, downturn, that China does not want to be subject to the same kind of economic pressures that the West and its partners are putting on Russia right now, and that China is very interested in still maintaining good international relations, especially at a time when its own trade policies are starting to undergo quite a bit of strain. Now, as far as the U.S. is concerned, there is a lot of worry that the two powers, Russia and China, will start to become closer. And they certainly do cooperate in military affairs, and they are both being incredibly critical about what they see as NATO's role mm. in, quote-unquote, sparking the uh, Ukraine conflict. They both are very concerned about where the West is going, where American power is going, so in that, they cooperate quite a bit. But you go down a few levels, you look at kind of the internal kind of diplomatic situation between the two, and you still see a lot of concern on both sides that in the future, their foreign policies and their security policies will continue to go in different directions. Professor Mark, if we read the lines, again, Xi Jinping has been very active recently in terms of giving speeches not only to average citizens, but also to the Communist Party. Now, some people believe that during the lines or in, in, in between the lines that should you be made crystal clear that China is not going to be absorbed, but instead it's going to do the absorbing. Now, we know that in a very limited time and in a short period that Xi Jinping is going to declare his presidency or his continuation of the presidency and which is going to matter a lot not only for the Chinese people for the nation but also for the rest of the world so Professor Mar my next question to you is do you think that today when we understand that China it's not going to be absorbed but instead China is going to do the absorbing. How do you think we should understand this? That's the first question. And the next question is, follow your thought. If the relationship between China and Russia continue to go well down the road, is China actually going to be or continue to be the supplier or the cheerleader for Russia? And again, given the fact the whole world is still watching the war in Ukraine and no one would like to see the war's continuation. So how do you think China should respond if the war keeps on going without having any attitude or without showing 
any affirmative attitude. How do you think the world is going to respond to this? Okay, two very big questions. Um, so the first, I would say that China is still very much a growing economic, political, and strategic power. Now, certainly, like many other parts of the world, the pandemic has had a very adverse effect on the Chinese economy and on Chinese foreign policy. But nevertheless, the Xi government is definitely making plans for when it finally emerges from COVID, when it's finally able to return to uh, the international scene much more directly. And this summit in Samarkand was sort of the first step to that process. Now, what China is very concerned about, though, is it is facing a West, especially a U.S. government, which is still very concerned about its growth. There is a lot of concern that the U.S. is kind of undertaking a zero-sum view of China's growth, mm -hmm. that it is seeking to contain Chinese power. And we're seeing this reflected with Taiwan policy, South China Sea, and so forth. And China is still very interested in continuing to build trade and economic links, including in areas that used to be considered uh, the United States' backyard. Mm. So how China will be able to address this, as it, and as I said before, it is heading into what is going to be a very difficult, as you say, party congress, where Xi Jinping is going to be um, certainly uh, going to get his third term. Right. But the political price will likely be extremely high that um, very likely he will need to share power with other factions. That is starting to look uh, quite clear. And many in China are still waiting patiently for the end of the zero COVID policy. Like case in point, um, I used to do some work in Chengdu, which is a very beautiful city mm. in central China. And it has been under lockdown now for more than two weeks right. under very difficult conditions. It's had very hot weather. It has recently had an earthquake in the region. And to shut down a city of that size, 21 million, and this is only one of many parts of China that have been shut down, this simply cannot be sustained economically. So that has put a great deal of additional pressure on the Chinese government to work out some kind of exit strategy. Professor Mark, are we going to see any changes in terms of Xi Jinping's this ideal uh, ideology built up for not only for China, but also outside the world. Because again, going back to when we listened to Xi Jinping's speech, something that he mentioned back in the days, and I quote, he said, when it comes to combat in the ideology domain, we don't have any room for compromise or retreat. We must achieve total victory. Now, you know, the funny thing is, when I was reading the lines, I can understand that this deep-rooted communism ideology inside or between the sentences, because on one hand, we know that Xi Jinping actively or heavily emphasized this unification, not only within the party members, but also within the country. But on the other hand, it's rather difficult today to use the word or to understand the word ideology under Xi Jinping. So how do you think that we should understand ideology after his continuation of the presidency or after the third term presidency is going to be affirmed? Does that mean we're going to see a different strategy for Xi Jinping or that means we're going to see some major big political or economic movement under Xi Jinping? No, that's a very good question. And it goes to probably one of the areas that are going to be looked at very carefully after the party congress is over. Will we see more of the same or will we see a dramatic turn, if you will, in regards to China's foreign policy and its security policy?
Now, I know that Beijing has made it very clear that it wants to continue to develop China as an advanced economy mm. over the next uh, 20, 25 years. To do that, it still needs to maintain very strong trade linkages. But it is starting to get so much pushback, especially in areas, for example, of high technology, uh, when we talk about energy, that the worry is that China's ability to build these economic links is going to start to become much more challenged. Mm. And we go back to what we were talking about before. We don't know what the U.S. government is going to look like, uh, for example, at the end of this year or two right. years from now. So that adds another very big question mark to a lot of China's considerations. Now, you asked me about ideology. On paper, there is very little change in regards to China as a quote-unquote communist state. You will still see all of the, the trappings of what you would have seen a few decades ago, including the five-year plans, just to give one example. Mm. But we are also starting to see a great deal more, I would say, comfort in the Chinese government with the idea of nationalism. This goes back to... Um, Xi Jinping's original idea of Zhongguo Meng, the China dream, mm. that China has a great deal of, uh, to contribute not only to the Asia Pacific, but to other parts of the world. And we're seeing a lot more confidence as China makes the often very difficult transition from great power to global power, leading to the other big question, will there be any kind of accommodation between the United States and China under those conditions? Mm. Professor Mark, again, previously that you briefly answered the question and touch on this uh, uh, one China policy. Now, recently sitting U.S. President Joe Biden had a one brief interview with the local media and the host asked the question regarding his attitude towards one China policy. And we know that Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan caused this political and also this economic firestorm in mainland China, of course, that she also faced some of the heavy criticism within this system. Now, this is what President Biden answered. And again, regarding to the one China policy, he said, a quote, we agree with what we signed onto a long time ago. And there's one China policy Taiwan makes their own judgment about their independence. We are not moving. We are not encouraging their be uh, their being independent. We are not, and that's their decision. And then the host, the press forward, asked, will U.S. military defend Taiwan if China were to invade? And then President answer is yes. And then later on, the White House seemed to have a different answer. So in other words, when when the uh, the press secretary was questioned uh, regarding uh, President Biden's comment, and the White House responded by saying that the position for the White House take on a one-China policy has never been changed. So it seems to us that the president and the White House are sending different messages to the world. So I want to get your reaction, Professor Mark. What is sitting U.S. President Joe Biden saying at this moment? Because we know that previously when he was actually touring Asia in Japan, he stood very firm that one China policy did not apply. But right now he's saying, yes, we respect this one China policy. But if Taiwan or the Taiwanese government decide to change the policy, we are going, we're not going to do anything about it. What happened there? Yeah, it's the short answer to that question. I can say it in two words, strategic ambiguity. Mm. That is pretty much the source of how the United States has tried to address the one China policy. 
Now, it was understood, I can go at least as far back as the late 1970s, it was understood that the United States would defend Taiwan's interests if it was militarily threatened by mm. Beijing. However, there was always the unwritten rule, if you will, in U.S. policy circles that, yes, we acknowledge it, but to say it openly is a completely different story. Mm. I'm harkening back to when George W. Bush first uh, took office, this was early 2001, when he was asked a very similar question, and he said, yes, we will do whatever it takes to defend Taiwan. And that had to put the State Department into overdrive because the impression was that the United States was about to shift its position on the One China policy. So the idea is that the U.S. does support Taiwan, and certainly Taiwan has accumulated a great deal of goodwill for its COVID handling policies, for its economy, democratization, and so forth. But the idea is that the one China policy still needs to be preserved in U.S. Uh, US foreign relations. So to say openly, as President Biden did, that yes, we will defend Taiwan if attacked, that gives the implication to Beijing that, okay, maybe a shift is taking place. And China has been extremely sensitive about any kind of shift in the one China policy over the past few years, not helped by the Pelosi visit. So it's a very, very delicate balancing act, which sometimes results in things tilting in one direction or another, and then having to correct. But Professor Mark, some experts believe as long as Joe Biden is the president, U.S. policy is to defend Taiwan. This is the right policy and is contribute to the deterrence of China and help to guide U.S. military planning. So in other words, again, we can't really understand if Joe Biden is going to change his policy on one China policy or not. But at this moment, we know from Republican and the Democrats, some of the hardcore officials, they are very much pushing Joe Biden to say, hey, listen, this is the policy under U.S. and this is the policy that Taiwan-U.S. had agreement previously. But right now, if Joe Biden is to reverse his policy or change any of the position on Taiwan, I'm afraid that the Taiwan region is going to see some ba backlash or see some loopholes within this issue. So how do you think that Taiwan at this moment should interpret U.S. attitude, especially after seeing this interview from, US, uh, from Joe Biden? Yeah, polls in Taiwan have consistently suggested that a majority of Taiwanese citizens would prefer the status quo, at least for now, that they don't, um, the majority does not appear to prefer or any kind of dramatic shift in stance from the Taiwanese government regarding potential independence. And China has already reacted to concerns about a U.S. shift in the One China policy. We have seen military maneuvers. We have seen a very strong array of cyber attacks uh, on Taiwan, a great deal of misinformation and disinformation directed mm -hmm. at Taiwan. And the concern that those who are worried that we might see a shift in Biden's Taiwan policy, to paraphrase um, Winston Churchill, the one China policy is the worst policy except for all the others. <laughs> is the United States and is the greater Asia Pacific community prepared for the potential ramifications of shifting stance on the one China policy? And there are a lot of variables here, not the least of which being that Taiwan is obviously a very important economic player, that it is a major provider of, for example, semiconductors, which has been a great concern of U.S. policy for quite some time now. And the worry is that with the situation going on right now with Ukraine, how is that affecting China's views on whether some kind of military solution towards Taiwan is considered more feasible, less feasible? There's a lot of unknown information here, information that we're missing. Hmm. Professor Mark, I want to shift to another country also recently signed 
a memorandum joining this SCO, which is the country of Iran. And given the report that recently, because this a meeting between Vladimir Putin and also Xi Jinping, that Iran also signed official memorandum and towards becoming a permanent member of the summit. Now, Tehran's foreign minister said, according to the source, this actually helped Tehran seeks to reduce its international isolation and cushion the impact of U.S. sanctions. And we know, again, Iran has been one of the major headaches for the U.S., especially regarding this nuclear weapon development. Now, coming to the full picture, Professor Mark, China, Russia, Iran, they're all putting things together. How concerning is the U.S. at this moment? And how do you think that Iran is going to change its behavior, especially after meeting with China, delegate, Chinese delegate, and also the Russian leader? Do you think at this moment the U.S. should actually dial down the temperature between U.S. and Iran at this moment, given the fact that Iran, remember, just joined this summit with China? And Russia. Yeah, uh, two very important points here. First of all, Iran had wanting had wanted to become a partner, a formal member of the SCO for many years. While Russia was enthusiastic, China was considerably more cautious, just for the reason which you just gave, that China was very nervous that Iran would be bringing its nuclear issues into the group, which would distract from what Beijing saw as the main purpose of the group, mm. to create a Eurasian community. Now, the fact that this stance has shifted is very important. It seems to suggest that relations between China and Iran have warmed to the point where China is more willing to accept Iranian membership. Now, the second point, which is key here, is that the SCO is not an alliance, so it's not a NATO-type structure. It's more of a security community. It is more of a consultative body. But those who are looking at the SCO now have frequently asked, well, okay, this is the situation now. What about in the future? Is it still possible for the SCO to eventually turn into some kind of counterweight to NATO and to the West. And you look at some of the other countries that have engaged um, the SCO, I'm talking primarily about Belarus, mm. there is the worry that we might be dealing with countries that have fallen out with the West, that have been ostracized by the West, and now all of a sudden they find uh, potentially shelter within the SCO. Now, about Iran specifically, it is very unlikely that we're going to be seeing a softening of stance as far as the U.S. is concerned. Uh, um, the previous uh, government in the U.S. made it very clear that it was not a fan of the Iran nuclear deal, and there's still a great deal of suspicion of that deal in Washington policy circles. Reports have recently appeared that Iran has been selling drones to Russia for use in Ukraine, and that is certainly not helping uh, relations between Iran and the West. And the concern that Iran is Iran's security stance is going to become more and more against uh, the United States' interests uh, in the near future. So Iran, I would say, is very indicative of the fact that we are starting to see a kind of hardening of approaches between the West and China, Russia, and other SEO members over which way security should go. Professor Mark, I want to um, have one more question before we move on to the final section of the conversation. How would you assess the relationship between China and with some of the members or some of the existing countries in the Middle East? For example, between China and Iran and also China, uh, Afghanistan, you know, because we know that 
for so long that China has been very much interested in investing and also developing this economic partnership with those countries. And given the fact those countries are indeed full of natural and rich resources, which can be very, uh, can be advantageous for China. But meanwhile, again, as we mentioned before, China has been very careful not to get too involved into political shift or political movement. But given the fact this is also unavoidable for China. So given the putting everything together, how do you think that China is benefiting from this economic, uh, 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 how can I say, packages without getting too involved into this political changes or this political shift within some of the countries in the Middle East? Yeah, you raise a good point. This is another example of how, in many ways, China's still trying to kind of feel its way uh, through diplomacy outside of the Asia-Pacific. Compared to North America, compared to Europe, China's had much less time to familiarize itself with the politics and security concerns of the Middle East and particularly the Gulf region. Mm. Now, that said, economically, China is facing a very interesting, I would say, next few months, potentially a year. Because if the zero COVID policy is removed very abruptly, and that is a possibility, we might be seeing the possibility of a V-shaped recovery. All of a sudden, demand for energy will go up quite a bit mm. in, uh, in China. Therefore, the Middle East will be a very important supplier, along with Africa, uh, for oil and gas. So I would say that China is trying to get ready for that possibility. Now, you're right in the sense that Beijing has been very careful not to get itself too involved in some of the particular political issues in the Middle East, primarily the divide, for example, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, the divides that we're seeing in the Gulf region, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. But it also wants to make itself uh, much more integrated into the economic situation there. It was recently announced uh, that uh, China and Israel may be embarking on free trade talks very soon, which is very significant. It really would seem to suggest that China really is becoming more comfortable with its economic relations in the region. However, the fact is China is still very much a newcomer there, and it is having to very often compete, if you will, with um, established Western relations. And Saudi Arabia, I think, is going to be a very key player there. Mm. Professor Mark, I want to get to the final part of the conversation. Now, let's shift the gear to another country, which is Sweden. And we know that this country today is also undergoing some of the major political shift. And given the fact that recent election really shows where the tilting point is. Now, based on the report, this winner that stood out actually came from, correct me if I'm wrong, it's called Social Democrats, and which the system or the party has been in power since 2014. Now, this candidate or this winner is running on the policy, it's promised to crack down on the shootings and other gang violence, and also this anti-immigration system. Professor Mark, help us to understand how should we understand this ongoing political shift in Sweden? And is there anything that we need to know in order to understand this deep conversation and also what people call it the populism? Okay, so in Sweden, very similar to to other countries in Europe, uh, there's a proportional representation system. So governments need to exist in coalition. Now, the election was just wrapped up in Sweden. The party that received the most votes is the Social Democratic Party of uh, Sweden, which is uh, center-left. However, the runner-up, uh, getting about 20% of the votes, is the Sweden Democrats, which, mm -hmm. despite the name, is far-right, has its origins in extreme-right movements uh, when the party was first 
created back in the late 1980s and had traditionally been ostracized by the other political parties in Sweden because of its extreme views. Now, with the very strong showing of the Sweden Democrats, there is a choice that needs to be made right now. It is very unlikely for any other, like any upcoming government coalition, which will very likely be met, uh, led by the moderate party, which is a bit center left, uh, sorry, center right, uh, to be able to function properly without support of the Sweden Democrats. And this has led to a lot of questions over, well, was it a good idea to ostracize that party? It was consistently left out of previous coalitions, or will it be necessary to at least accept the social, the Sweden Democrats as a partner? And certainly one of the reasons why the Sweden Democrats did so well is that there has been a great deal of frustration in Sweden towards uh, the situation with the economy. Inflation is affecting the country like many other parts of the world. There are concerns about crime. And the Sweden Democrats were also able to make immigration a central platform within the election. So put all that together, and it wasn't so much of a question of people were, or many of the voters were supporting the Sweden Democrats. They were voting against what they saw was a political establishment, which was no longer reflecting their interests. But Professor Mark, let's be clear, if the, if the, if the candidate or if the system is running on upon the policy, which is anti-immigration, don't you think this is a very dangerous route to take? I mean, remember, if when we look at this U.S. foreign policy and uh, specifically domestically, former U.S. President uh, Donald Trump was actually running on this policy. You know, again, he was anti-immigration and you know, he was anti-open borders and stuff. And plus, there are other major international leaders are also running similar policies as well. But given the fact that today. If you are continuing or if you are insisting on this anti-immigration policy or anti-open border policy, in reality is you might just get less and less popular because we need to learn how to be more tolerant. We need to have this open-minded uh, mindset or most importantly, a lot more people believe that immigrants today are actually contributing a lot more to the local community or even on the national level. So going back to the Sweden, uh, Sweden uh, uh, political changes, why do you think this is the whole policy? Or why do you think this policy is getting more attractions if, if, if the whole world is going against the odd? Yeah, it's it's been interesting to kind of compare what has been happening with Sweden with what what uh, happened with the previous elections here in Norway. So Norway also has a far right party, the Progress Party, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. Mm. And a decision was made a few elections ago to include the party directly into a conservative coalition. And as a result, many of of the Progress Party's uh, policies were watered down considerably mm. to the point where they left the government coalition in 2020 just out of uh, a dispute with the main conservative party. Um, so the argument being that creating a cordon sanitaire, as it's been called, other parties basically gang up and prevent the far-right party from having any kind of say in government um, won't necessarily work because there was the hope in Sweden that, okay, if we continue to ignore this party, eventually they'll lose support. Mm. The fact is they got 20% of the vote, so it's going to be very difficult to ignore them with uh, the incoming government. But the big difference between Norway and Sweden on one hand and the United States on the other is that coalition governments are very common in mm. Northern Europe. And if you're going to form a coalition government, you need to compromise, which means that you have to let go, in many cases, some of your more extreme views, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. But that said, yes, there are parties in Sweden, as well as many uh, citizens in Sweden, who are very uncomfortable 
with the possibility of the Sweden Democrats having any kind of authority in the country. But it really, this victory though, does seem to suggest that there's a great deal of frustration with the quote unquote political mainstream. So this is a question with, you know, very, very difficult to answer. Professor Mark, I know you're busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about this relationship between Sweden and, uh, Sweden and NATO at this moment. Now, today, how should we assess this po uh, political or this economic relationship between Sweden and NATO? Because we know that today, since the war in Ukraine broke out, and everyone is not only looking at how U.S. is just responding to this war, but also people are very concerned if NATO is open to accepting more applicants in order to get more protections or more economic or military uh, uh, benefits whatsoever. But we know that Sweden was one of the countries that filed application to join NATO, and some countries say yes, but other countries say no. But let's fast forward. How should we understand this membership from Sweden and to NATO at this moment? And how do you think that Sweden can't actually gain the benefits by joining NATO, and what would NATO get in return by admitting Sweden into this member group? Okay, well, for many decades, uh, Sweden's foreign policy and specifically security stance was that of neutrality, that it wanted to maintain a specific balance between East and West, and that was very politically popular for a very long time. Go to 2014, go to uh, the invasion of Crimea by Russian forces. That pretty much touched off a considerable debate in Sweden saying that neutrality is a luxury that we can no longer afford. Mm. Now, even at that, um, there's the tendency to view kind of a neutral country as one with a very underdeveloped military or sometimes no military at all. That is not the case in Sweden. Very modern military and already having quite a few existing links with NATO countries, including here in Norway, like the amount of military cooperation between Norway, Sweden, Finland is very extensive. But once the Ukraine invasion happened, that really rapidly tilted a lot of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Even those who were very Eurosceptic or very skeptical of NATO saying, okay, they don't really provide that much in the way of security, shifted their views very quickly, mm -hmm. underscoring the fact that, okay, we need to join. Mm -hmm. So then there was a bit of discussion about, well, should we wait for Finland to go first? Should we kind of do an I lead, you lead type mm -hmm. situation? But now, as you point out, both countries have now applied. Uh, a majority of NATO members are very supportive of membership in the first instance. The only major holdout is Turkey, and that has to do with Sweden's views on Kurdish, uh, Kurdish nationalists mm. and Kurdish policy. So I imagine there's going to be, uh, there has been some ongoing negotiation to uh, um, create a situation whereby Turkey will support mm. both membership bids. Now, what this will do, should Sweden and Finland get in, this is going to really change the dynamic here in Northern Europe, because now you'll have pretty much every country as a NATO member, with the exception of Russia across the way. This will lead to a lot more cooperation between the Nordic states and the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, very small states, and obviously very nervous about what Russia is doing because of their uh, size. Being embedded in a NATO with more members is certainly helpful. Mm. So right now, I think we're still seeing a lot of support in Sweden, regardless of which way this new government is going to go. I don't think that any incoming government will be skeptical about NATO membership. Things have changed simply too much. Mm. Professor Mark, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to what's coming up for this world, which is 
in November, the G20 summit is going to be held and very soon. And again, for this time, people are expecting that sitting U.S. President Joe Biden, Chinese leader Xi Jinping, and many other critical, significant players are going to meet up. And of course, not only people are going to pay attention to the content of the summit, but people are also looking forward to see this in-person meeting between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. So my last question is very simple is, from your perspective and based on your analysis, what can we expect at this moment? Because we know that this year is very crucial for the midterm election for the US and also this presidency continuation for China. And also look at this economic deadlock and political decoupling between the two countries. Putting everything together, do you think that this G20 summit is going to be a mechanism at least can bring some of the problems to find solutions? If so, how can we understand it? Yeah, there is going to be a significant spotlight on this meeting. Everyone is going to be looking at who is going to be talking with whom. Mm. Now, I would say that this does provide a very important opportunity, both for the United States and for China, to lower the temperature to a degree on the relationship in order to uh, focus on other areas, in order to focus on other areas of both domestic and foreign policy. Now, what will actually come out of it is a good question, because, again, both sides are interested in toning down the situation, but not to the point where they will look like they are losing ground to the other. Mm. So there's going to be a balance there. There's also going to be... A a great deal of discussion on issues that they're both in agreement with, including economic recovery, moving beyond COVID, environmental issues. So I think we'll try to uh, try to look for areas of common ground. But there's also going to be a lot of jockeying over, well, okay, who is going to come out ahead diplomatically? And I'm not just talking about the U.S. and China. There are several major leaders that are going to be looking to this particular meeting as a way of shoring up their foreign policy credentials. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Professor Mark Lenton. Again, Professor Mark Lenton teaches in political science, including international relations, and his current research interests focus on China and domestic and international politics. Of course, also include the country of Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, and many more. Again, Professor Mark, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. It's been a pleasure and a meaningful and engaging conversation with you regarding how China and the world is moving ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Professor.